Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is your host, John Landis, and we are bringing you the second half of an interview that was done of Tom Scott back in November 2015. Tom Scott, the uh, the very well-known and talented um, uh, saxophone player, uh, producer, music director, composer, um, wonderful guy, wonderful storyteller. This is a really, really inter- entertaining interview, and he's had just the, the greatest life. The interview has been done by Dave Schroeder of NYU Steinhardt School. He's the chairman of the jazz of the uh, music department there. And uh, they became friends, I think, after this interview, because in four years later, they played at a, pro- at a production that we put together at the Southampton Art Center in Southampton uh, in June of 2019 or May 2019. Uh, it was a wonderful night, just just really one of the best. Um, great band from NYU that they called uh, Combo Nouveau with Tom Scott uh, playing the uh, playing the uh, saxophone and, and just accompanied by these really uh, outstanding musicians and telling stories about his life. He's had a great life. He's been involved in something like 500 productions or recordings over the time. He's gotten three Grammys, multiple nominations, an Emmy nomination for working with Tony Bennett. He's uh, the son of a of a very well-known uh, uh, music composer for uh, television and, and movies. And he himself, Tom, is a composer, producer, music director, uh, storyteller, versed in Indian music. Uh, you're going to enjoy this interview tremendously. Um, so let's just get to it. An interview by Tom, of Tom Scott, by Dave Schroeder, that took place back in November 2015. So after this, Tom Scott starts to become a leader. I do. Well, I'd started, you know, I had bands in the past. And, you know, I've always said, I, in, in, I started in my teenage years. Actually, there was a competition uh, when I was in high school called the Hollywood Bowl Battle of the Bands, sponsored by the LA De- Los Angeles Department of Recreation and Parks. And out of that competition came the Carpenters. Karen Carpenter, in fact, was not a, didn't sing. They won the year after me as the Car- Richard Carpenter Trio. Richard and Karen were brother and sister out of Long Beach, and they had a bass player with them, and they kind of did a sort of an Oscar Peterson type thing. She was the drummer, and quite good. So when they later became huge and she became a singer, I was like, wow, you're kidding me. Mm. Who knew? Did you know her back then? I, I, I just, you know, barely. Barely. Um, why did I bring that up? What were we talking about? You becoming a leader. Oh, me becoming a leader, right. So I've always said that uh, re- I, I was kind of reluctant to be- become a leader, as many of us are. But somebody's got to make the phone calls. It's the, it's the administrative part of being a leader that's a parent Okay, but you do it because you want to have a band and you want to play in a good band, and so uh, you do it. You know, I I I always w- I just wanted to be be around great players. I didn't have to be the leader, but it's destiny. You know, dictated that I became one. Mm-hmm. And the music that you wrote that was recorded on uh, L- you Tom Scott and L.A. Express and various records after that. That was how many years ago now? The LA Express uh, sort of became coalesced in 1973. So, how many years ago? Was it too many years ago? Now we've recreated some of those as big band charts that we're performing here. But uh, you right. were saying the other day that you hadn't played some of these in 40 years. 45, 45. actually. Wow. <laughs> now the That's interesting true. thing is a lot of the students. Or would have been the age that you were when you became the leader of this group and right. you had uh, major record opportunities and right. you put out may, somewhere over 20 records as a as a leader, I believe. 
Well, by now it's about 35, actually, uh -huh. with the all the best of and compilations and all that, add all that in. And I played on uh, over 500 recordings of for other people, as I say, everybody, the Beatles and Barbara Streisand and Michael Jackson and Steely Dan and Aerosmith and, I don't know, many, many more. Mm -hmm. Anybody else stand out? Sure. Um, Steely Dan. See, that, that record, I did a record called Asia, if you know that record. It's, it's so iconic, and the reason it's iconic, I mean, it was a, it's their great songs, and, uh, and the, the, it was just the right time for me to get involved with that group and add that kind of, yeah, if I may say, I may say, kind of an Oliver Nelson kind of vibe in the mm. background there. Uh, but what is amazing about those records that is, is that, and, and, I, and the guy who engineered it, a guy named Roger Nichols, who I think is not with us anymore, he did an amazing job engineering it. But what's remarkable about the record of uh, all the combination of things that went into it is that's one of the few records that you put on and it sounds, it has kind of a timeless quality. It could have been done, you know, a year ago or 20 years ago or actually it was done in 1976, however many years ago. But, I, I, you know, there are many great records. You put them on and you kind of know. They have, they have a certain time attached to the style, whatever. Steely Dan stuff is just timeless. It's mm -hmm. amazing, particularly that record, uh, Asia. It's just remarkable, and I'm very proud to have been a part of it. Did you stay in touch with those guys? I stayed in touch with Walter. Uh, Donald Fagan is not, not the most uh, sociable guy on the planet, let's put it that way. Uh, but Walter is a wonderful guy. He lives in uh, Hawaii and Maui. And uh, I haven't seen him in a while, but there was a time when I visited Hawaii from time to time, and I would look him up, and we'd go go out to dinner, and he, he was a delightful guy. Well, let's talk about personality, because we've gotten to know you here, and you're very approachable, you're very friendly, you're very kind and honest, and, and what else can I say about you? <laughs> but no. how, how does that uh, translate to having a career, especially in okay. California, because, you know, the, everybody's, uh, I'm always told that in California, everybody has a student persona where you're super nice because you want to get work, and... Well... Um, that's, I mean, look, it, you got to be nice in any business if you expect to get work. I mean, that's just a rule, you know, if you're, if you're a jerk, uh, people aren't going to ask you back because you're a drag to be around. But I, this particular situation that I faced with, with uh, so many pop people like Joni, like George, who, again, we used to, we used to derisively refer to them as hummers because <laughs> they would hum and somebody else would actually write the stuff down. Wow. In fact, Dave Raxon, a uh, uh, quick aside, Dave Raxon, a wonderful composer of Laura, and a great film composer, and a, and a wonderful man. We loved him. Uh, he taught a, 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 uh, a class in film composing at USC for a time. And he explained that uh, there, in, in music there's a composer, and then there's the arranger. Now, the composer is the guy who actually owns the copyright of the song, uh, or with his publisher or whatever. But he's the one who receives royalties for, this, for the performance of the song. The arranger is the guy who takes the, the song and puts it into a context. That is, is it going to be for an orchestra? Is it going to be for a rock band? Is it going to be for a jazz ensemble or whatever? And for that, he gets a set fee and he doesn't participate in the royalties at all. And some guy raises his hand and said, Mr. Raxon, I have a question. Why would anyone want to be an arranger? <laughs> and uh, 
And the answer, of course, is because it's fun. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, look, there are guys who have made very fine living, living as, as arrangers, and we are, will be forever indebted to the likes of Quincy Jones, Thad Jones, Billy May, you know, uh, uh, all these great, great Sammy Nestico, all these guys who have provided such a wealth of great, great material for us to learn from. Marty Page, Pat Williams, I, I mean, I could go on and on. About and me. you know all these guys. I have I, everyone I mentioned. I know. Yeah. I have known. Yeah. Yes. And then uh, let's not forget that you're also a composer and an arranger, and you've been on uh, written for several TV shows. That's correct. And uh, you know what? I want you to tell everybody your experience, how you got <laughs> the theme from Starsky. <laughs> yeah. Well, if there's ever an example of you know, you never know where the next opportunity is going to come from. Okay. This is one of those. Uh, I, I, got a, I have a friend, I had a friend named Artie Kane, a wonderful studio pianist. He came up to me one day on a, on a session and said, listen, Tom, I happen to be going, uh, going steady with a woman who was actually the, the daughter of the comedian Jack Benny, if you know Jack Benny is. Famous, famous comedian. I said, well, that must be great. You know, that's fun. Well, that's not why I'm telling you this. He says, I'm telling you because she, has a, she lives in, in, uh, in Bel Air, California, you know, very, the ritziest neighborhood, you know, ritzier than Beverly Hills. It's the, it's the rich part of Beverly Hills, mm -hmm. and you know what I mean? Uh, and she has a daughter going to a private school in Bel Air. And they're having, they have career, these career days. And I told Joan, Joan Benny, the mother, that, um, it, that you might be a good candidate to go there and talk about uh, what you do, the fact that you do overdub saxophone, you know, that in those days, like, I would get a tape of the tune, and I actually had a tape of Carol King's Jazz Man at the time, I'd just done that. So I had a tape of me without my performance, the part that I added on. So I took this reel-to-reel -reel tape and my saxophone, and here's a room full of 12-year-old girls. <laughs> and I'm explaining to them that I play the saxophone and I play it in the recording studio and I add my part on later after after the tune is and the vocals have already been done and here's what it sounds like before me and uh, I'm going to tell you you know I'm going to demonstrate for you live what it's like afterwards so I played the thing and it went very well and I had a couple of questions and you know I packed up my horn and went home and forgot about it well about, I don't know, a few months later, my film agent, a guy named Al Barton, calls me and says, Tom, um, did you do something for a girls' school uh, in Bel Air? I said, yeah, I did a little demonstration for you. Well, one of the girls, uh, her father, is a producer of this show called Starsky and Hutch that's going to come start next year, and uh, they need a theme. And apparently she told her dad that I'd be a great one to write the theme. <laughs> she did. So I ended up doing a three-song demo session. Wilton Felder, who played, who played great tenor on the Jazz Crusaders, but played also great bass. He played bass on the thing. I think um, Joe Sample played piano. I believe Larry Carlton played guitar. I don't remember who the drummer was. Anyway, we did three songs. I, the first one, the one that we now play with, the, with our band here, the, the Starsky Nuts theme, that was the first tune, and I sort of knew that the others, although they ended, the others ended up on pre, uh, subsequent records of mine because they were nice tunes, but they weren't, they weren't, they didn't have that Law and Order rock vibe that uh, 
that this tune had. So that became the theme for Starsky and Hutch, and uh, that's how I got it, because of this 12-year-old girl. Go figure.
Tom has played with something like 500 projects. He's played with Streisand, Sinatra, Joni Mitchell, Paul McCartney, George Harrison. But uh, playing is just one of the things he does. He's also a composer, a producer, a musical director. He's won three Grammys, had 13 nominations, has an Emmy, nomina an Emmy nomination that he got for uh, do doing Tony Bennett's 90th birthday. Um, and uh, wonderful, happy guy, wonderful storyteller, great interview all around. Thanks so much for joining us on WLIW uh, FM, Southampton, New York, 88.3, Long Island's only NPR station. Also heard on, on WLIW.org slash radio. We, we were listening to you play today with the big band, and uh, we're all sitting there saying, that sounds like Tom Scott. <laughs> what is that? How did you come up with uh, right. your is funky grooves, funky playing, rock, right. pop? Uh, who did you listen to to right. kind of find that? Well, uh, see, I, it's funny you say this because I still remember from my... See, the first album I told you was this pop thing with the, the Kevin and all these people. But for the second album, Bob Thiel let me do my own thing, which mm -hmm. was much more of a jazz quartet. It was a jazz quartet thing. <laughs> Just a brief aside, okay? We, we did the album with this quartet, John Guerin, Chuck DeMonico, and a piano player named Mike Lang. We went to shoot the cover. The photographer said, we're going to shoot the cover with all you guys. And then there, I know this place out in the North Valley that's kind of a horse ranch, and it's got some cabins and stuff, and we'll do a, a shot you know, with you guys standing in front of a cabin or something. So the album is called Rural Still Life. The cover is, in fact, us, the four of us, standing in front of this cabin. The cabin the next year became the home of the Manson family. <laughs> it was the Spawn oh, movie ranch. Oh, no. <laughs> but anyway, what were we talking about? Um, what was the question? Uh, uh, I just got off on that completely. Uh, how did you get your sound and your... Right, by sound, okay. So, I still remember the review that I got from that, that album, Rural Still Life, where the guy, the guy said, uh, uh, he said, well, Scott is a, is clearly has talent. But he's very eclectic. And I thought, I don't even know what the hell that means. I looked it up, and of course it means varied and uh, mm -hmm. you know, lacking in, in a certain in focus that, that way. You, know, you do a lot of things, but you haven't focused on anything. So I thought, well, I, I thought to myself the same thing you just asked me. Well, how do you get an identity? And I guess the answer is, over time, um, you know, your ears, if you keep playing and keep working at it, kind of, you start to hear what you, you know what you want to hear when you play the horn and you kind of do the things that are necessary to achieve that sound. And I was, again, I was listening to, to uh, of course I had that background of all the jazz, the famous great jazz guys, but then I started listening to people like King Curtis, some of the great R&B guys who play, and, and, and a guy, an R&B guy like Stanley Turrentine, although I, he's a jazz guy, but still he played it with a kind of an R&B flavor, you know? And guys like Hank Crawford, guys who were more, and, and of course later on Grover Washington, I, who became a dear friend I loved. Um, but I, I embraced a kind of simpler style because it became obvious to me. What I learned from the LA Express was that the audience responds, and you know, I, I never had this, this conflict about, oh my God, am I playing for myself or am I, am I cheapening it by trying to please an audience? I never, I never felt that was a problem. Like if you're doing it right, <laughs> It's something you like and something the audience likes. There's, there's no, there doesn't have to be a wall between those two, that you can do both. Mm -hmm. And that was what I wanted to do. So 
With that in mind, I started to embrace the styles of these, of these, as I say, more, pa I would say more passionate, more, you know, less notes and more passion. And, and, I, and it really, I, I love that, st I love that stuff. So um, I think that sort of infused itself into this bebop guy that I thought I was going to be. And it sort of turned out that I, lo and behold, you do what you have a body of work and pretty soon, gee, I guess I have a style. Uh, but ironically, um, I had a friend in L.A., a lady that who was our second engineer much, a bunch of the time uh, for my recordings, and she got a job working as a, in the engineering school at Berkeley, uh, Berkeley School of Music in Boston. So we had a little send-off party for her. <laughs> and, and I had never seen the Berkeley School of Music catalog. So I'm leafing through this thing, and I'm amazed at all the different kinds of music classes they have and all the styles. I get to this page, and it says, Fusion 101, a study of the music of Tom Scott and the Brecker Brothers. And I'm going, really? You know, I'd like to take that class because I don't have a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> I really don't. I didn't know it like was, could be put into a course of study, you know what I mean? Uh, what is it? And I, I, I still to this day, I would love to know what they... I mean, did, you know, did they codify my style into some into like a course of study, like rule number one of playing like Tom Scott, and you know, or what? I still don't know, but um, it's it's just a thing. I think the the big answer to your question is it's something that evolves over time. Did you find that um, people were copying you <coughs> and they would send you? Can be a young out? Tom Scott, sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they did, especially after. Um, uh, the Steely Dan record and uh, a couple of solos that I had done, uh, particularly the Jazzman solo. Yeah, I had heard, well, that, you know, that sort of morphed into the kind of happy jazz that we, that we now have, uh, you know, uh, I guess, I guess uh, typified by, by Kenny G and all those people who came to smooth jazz, they call it. And uh, there were times when I, I went on stage in those days and somebody referred to me, and ladies and gentlemen, here's one of the founding fathers of smooth jazz. And I said, please, please don't say that, please. I, 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 you know, I don't, I don't really feel that I was that. I, I did, I did definitely incorporate elements of pop music and R&B into my play. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour, and we are bringing you a pre-recorded interview of Tom Scott, done by Dave Schroeder. This was uh, recorded back in November 2015. You're listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour on WLIW.org slash radio. The problem now that I have with so many saxophone players is I can't tell any of them apart. Mm -hmm. They all sound the same to me. And boy, you know, in my day, and when I was coming up, I, I knew what Stanley Getz sounded like, you know, and Sonny Rollins and Stanley Turrentine over here, and Coltrane, you know, with the real hard, edgy sounds, and the Paul Desmonds and the Stan Getzes and the Mulligans, and you know, and you know, you knew who it was right away. I, I think it's it's too bad because because individual these guys should be going for an individual style, whatever that wherever that takes them, but they seem to be embracing this kind of language that everybody everybody plays if they all sound alike. Why do you think that that happened? You came along with with your groups and your sound, and David Sanborn, kind of the right. same thing, and right. Black Brothers, the yes. same thing. And here's this thing that's kind of jazz pop crossover. Right. But then it started to get kind of simplified and dumbed down, and more like you were talking about. I wanted to be more more emotional, I was, passionate. I was very disappointed. I'll tell you. I loved Dave and I. Dave and Michael and I were buddies. I mean, I loved it. Uh, God, they, they were great guys. They are great guys. David is a great guy. Michael, of course, is no longer with us, but but we were dear friends, and I, I admired him so much. You know, he could do things I couldn't even imagine. Uh, wow, what a what a um, remarkable talent! But you know, we all were do, were searching, individuals searching for our voice. You know, and uh, I just assumed. Until this happened, this this kind of unfortunate turn of events, that this was everybody's, everybody was, is seeking you know their own voice. That that's that's what's important. That's an important element of it, not to just imitate uh, this you know this amorphous group of saxophone players. It doesn't work for me. Well, uh, in the late '90s, in eight, late '80s into the '90s, uh, GRP Records was formed, mm -hmm. and I know you worked with them. I and did. Those were Kind of the instigators of this moving into that direction, especially here in New York, with a with a radio station called CD One Hundred One. Right, right. So, did you right. ever talk to Grusin or uh, Rosen about why are you guys going in this direction? I don't think that they intentionally did it. I think I think there were other elements that caused that to happen. Certainly, if you listen to Dave Grusin, Dave Grusin has a, has a very unique style, as as does Bob James, another great keyboard player, composer of that kind of the, that era. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, for some reason, particularly with the saxophone, it became like uh, everybody, I, I don't know, maybe it, was, maybe it was Kenny G's enormous popularity that suddenly happened out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid to say this. <laughs> you know, there was a joke a couple of years ago, which was, I mean, and this is a fact, apparently, that Kenny G got divorced, and for, you know, that's unfortunate for anybody, right? Um, but um, in honor of that, uh, elevators all over the country observed a moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm sorry. Sorry, Kenny. Uh, but uh, his rise was so meteoric, and so, you know, everybody, I, I did, like Dave Koss, who's a dear friend of mine, I love him to death, but he, uh, I, I went to see him one night, his, his, his show, and I just, I said, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to do to do with that. I, it's just not me. But why do you think audiences do they prefer that, or they've just gotten used to that? 
If I find out, I'm going to let you know. Okay. <laughs> That's your secret. Basically. Yeah, I, I, I can't figure it out. I, I, it's not a secret, but I just don't know what it is. I don't understand yeah. it. It doesn't, you know, it's not musically pleasing to me. It's very dull after a very short time. You know, like rap is the same thing. I have nothing against it in principle. I, I don't really, I think of rap as street poetry set to rhythm. There's a little music in there, but don't please don't call it music. It's not. It's something else. And the, and, and that level, it's okay. But you know, but uh, personally, it just it's so it's monotonous in a musical way that just it's just like you know fingernails on a blackboard to me. I can't I can't act it. I'm old fashioned and I, whatever. But that's just the way I am. And uh, I wish that there was a more of an appreciation of mm. individual style, melody, harmony. The, the wonderful values that we've that have evolved in music, you know, over the centuries.
Thanks for joining us. You're listening to 88.3 FM, Southampton, New York. Uh, that's WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour. Well, today, are you still searching for that? Hell yeah. When do you stop? I mean, you know, it's you always want to, if there's anything you can do to, you know, improve yourself and maybe enlighten yourself by... I mean, music is, at its best, it's always full of interesting discoveries that you weren't necessarily even looking for. But by, especially in ensemble work, we're lucky, you know. Artists have to sit alone and paint, you know. I mean, it's, uh, I love art, but I'm saying, but it's a, it's a talk about a solitary, you know, uh, occurrence. But uh, we're in music, the, the joy of something, you know, uh, the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts when you're in a good band of all creative people trying to make something good happen. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a feeling that just is unparalleled. Now, when I was younger, when I was in high school, I had all your records, many of your records. And uh, the one that, thing that used to flip me out was the Lyricon. Oh, yeah. So most people don't know what that is. Maybe. No. Well, I, why would they? Uh, the Lyricon was the first of the wind synthesizers. And this is true. I was actually on the tour with Johnny Mitchell's 1974. I get a copy of Downbeat at some magazine stand somewhere in some town. I don't remember where. I open it up, and here's this little quarter-page ad. And this thing that looks sort of like a metal silver clarinet, and, uh, you know, it's got a wire coming out of it going to some thing. What is this? <laughs> so I got on the phone. I found the number of the company and called this guy named Bill Bernardi who with a partner of him, they used to make parts for submarines or something like that. And they, they're both, but they're both amateur musicians and had this thought of, of building something where, where this tone, you know, and in 1974, again, guys, this is all, see, this all seems like nothing today. But in those days, it, you know, had somebody started it. And these guys started the, I think, kind of concept of a synthesizer that's wind driven. In other words, you can blow into it and the amount of, of vol- the volume that you put into the horn will determine the volume that comes out. Be it a, you know, it's converted to digital and all that kind of stuff. So I went to the factory. Well, we were on tour with Joni. We got to Boston. This factory was just outside of Boston. I went to the factory, got a got a Lyricon, and uh, and started. And uh, it, it was I, it difficult to play. Uh, no, it was not bad at all. Actually, it was. It, it felt like more or less like a clarinet. Um, yeah, it was more or less clear, and, and, and they had deci- they had really designed it with music, with uh, woodwind players in mind, mm. so it wasn't that hard a transition. Learning how to blow into it and, and make it trigger the you know the uh, volume and all and the and the filter and all that stuff that took a little time, but it was it was a well made instrument. It really was. Problem was that that, that after God, I, I played it. I played it on some records, some pretty good records for a wow. while there, um, but the instrument the the company. Went out of business, you know. Apparently, they couldn't. There weren't enough women players. Made? Yeah, I think so. Wow. I think so. Uh, it was a noble effort, but uh, and and saxophonists aren't always the most um, tech savvy people in the mm-hmm. world, you know. So um, Michael, My, Michael got the uh, the other one, the the Ewe. Yeah. Holy crap! Did he do some amazing stuff with that? I saw him at the Hollywood Bowl with uh, Paul Simon. <laughs> and finally, it was time for Michael's little instrumental, you know, feature. 
And this thing started, there. He, was, he was hitting buttons and this African stuff was going on. It's all coming out of this horn and then he's playing on top of it. It was, God, it was amazing. Mm. And I thought, geez, I've never done anything even close to that. I've just got this little sound that I make. It's kind of like a, you know. But did he have a, a lyric on it? No, he didn't, no. He was the iwi guy. And the iwi, I, I'm sorry to say, I couldn't, it, I was, didn't feel natural to me. To this day, I can't, they, you know, the guys gave me one to work on and I just, well, I bought the Lyricon up because if I went on to uh, somewhere online and they were selling this big poster ad of Tom Scott plays the Lyricon. <laughs> and it was you and Wayne Shorter. Were oh, the guys. my God. So, I'd forgotten that Wayne was part of that, too. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I guess, did he play with Weather Report then, I guess? Or I don't know if don't he know. played that with Weather Report. Wow. I'd forgotten. Those were great days, though, and then again, you know, it was, it was fun to be part of that kind of changeover that happened with where electronics were suddenly being incorporated into wind instruments. I mean, it was cool. Listen, we're just about out of time, but uh, this is your chance to give our students here your, your final words of wisdom. Inspire them. Okay. Well, look, um, music is a passion, and I, I assume that most of you are here because you're you're, uh, you have that passion within you, and uh, you know, if you want to, if you want to really take it seriously, I, you know, I had no problem taking it seriously because I think that from a very early age I was just obsessed, you know, with music. I used to sit home and listen to records and you know play two bars of something and take it off and then find the notes, experiment with what are those notes, go to the piano and find the chords and write them down. And you know, I just was, and my friends were out playing football, whatever they were doing, I was in my house with that little photograph. Um, and so if, if the question is, do I, do any of you have a future in, in, as a, a musician, in the, you know, as a professional, um, you have to ask yourself, A, what is it I do? And who is the most proficient or famous or gifted, talented person who does that that you can think of. Because it's a very competitive field. And, and you gotta ask yourself, well, do I think I can achieve that level of proficiency? Uh, and if you, if you, and, and you'll, you'll do it at all, whatever it takes. If you can answer those two questions, yes, give it a shot, you know? But again, understand that uh, that it, it is highly competitive. There are a lot of very good musicians out there. And the business that I was in in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is not the business that you face. And I don't, I don't know exactly how to tell you the path to get, you know, to get a successful career going. It's not the path I took, but, but I know there are ways, you know, to do it. Um, but you've got, to, you've got to be very, very committed and, and you know, care a lot about achieving it and always listen to your you know when you're, when you're practicing or whatever you're doing be be your own worst critic I mean you've got to you can't be get complacent you've got to say how can I get better how do I if you're playing an instrument a wind instrument or whatever it is how do I sound how can I get better what do I what do I need to achieve the all the tools and you know uh, being a player especially a jazz player there's a body of knowledge that you got to know not that you're going to recite it at every concert, because once, you, but you've got to know it in order to know what not to play. If you know what I mean, that 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 music is about communicating with an audience, and and, and all the scales and chords and all the stuff that we learn is part of the natural 
course we, we, we've got to follow in, in Yochiba. It's, it's for the goal of communicating. It's merely a tool. It's like a painter has a palette, but the palette isn't what's important. What's important is what choices, specific choices they make and you know, how they use them. And so you've got to be your own worst critic and be very vigilant. And I guess that's about the best way I could put it.
I've been your host, John Landis. I really appreciate your having been with us. We'll continue to bring you some great music, some interviews uh, during this difficult time. Stay with us. Hang in there. Um, our co-producer tonight and, and post-production master, Rafael Alvarez. Um, our theme music was by Silvano Monasterios from his tune, Tropical Mirage. Our musical director is Cleus Brandal. Um, we've been so happy to be able to bring you some uh, some um, information and, and uh, uh, dialogue with Tom Scott and Dave Schroeder. We appreciate all the people at NYU who made this possible. Dave Schroeder and his and his bunch. Uh, we were lucky enough in the summer of 2019 to have Tom Scott playing with Dave Schroeder and his Combo Nouveau from NYU at the Southampton Art Center. We thank all those at the Southampton Art Center, Amy, Amy um, and others. And uh, again, the Dave Schroeder material, uh, the interview was produced by Joseph Vella, Ed Parada, Shake Up Productions, and made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. Thanks so much for being with us. Please stay safe. Wear a mask, social distance. We're going to get all through this uh, all together, and we appreciate your being with us once again. Thanks from the Jam Session Radio Hour, and good night. Thank you.